Good morning. Good to see you guys at church today. It's great that we could gather together. I'm going to move this mic. Thanks. We've uh, kicked off a series a few weeks ago called Good News to the Poor. We're working our way through Luke's Gospel. By uh, Christmas, we'll get to chapter 12. We're going nice and slow, but uh, it's nice. It's nice to be able to dig real deep into the Scriptures. That's what we're all about here at Anchor. We're about listening to what God has to say to us. We refuse to believe the lie that we're wiser than God. And to do that, you need to submit yourself to this. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you take it out? We're going to go to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to look at the back half of Luke chapter 2 now. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We believe that God speaks through this book, and if you've never read it before, it's the most important book you could ever read, and it will change your life radically. We've got Bibles for free up the back at the welcome desk. If you want to grab one of them and take it, you can keep it. It would be our gift to you this morning. I'm going to pray for us as we come together and and look at this word that God would speak to us. Please join me as as I pray. Father God, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And Father, we know that your word is like a hammer that smashes rock to pieces. We know that your word is like a sword that judges the thoughts and attitude of our hearts. We know that your word is like a seed that produces a bountiful crop of righteousness in our lives. We know that your word is light. It reveals your heart and your character to us. And so we pray this morning, give us ears to hear. And more importantly, give us eyes, the eyes of faith, to see Jesus for who he really is and worship him as he deserves. And we pray it in his strong name. Amen. If you guys remember those, um, those 3D patterns, anyone remember those? Like it was just a squiggle of colors, right? And if you stared at it long enough, it, this, this image would come out at you. I remember the first time I looked at one of those things and, and I'm staring at this image and everyone's like, can you see the ship? I was like, I can't see the ship. I just see a blur of pattern colors. And can you see the whale? I'm like, I can't see the whale. It's just like this flat image of color. And I would try all these techniques, like you try to go cross-eyed, look, and it doesn't work. And you, you try to do the fuzzy eye thing. And all of these people are telling you how it works for them. And you just can't see it. And then eventually, after hours of staring, like I took them home and, and printed them off. I'm like staring at them like this. Eventually... I see the ship. I'm like, I can see the ship. I can see the whale. It's funny how you can be staring at something for so long and just not see what's really there when all of these other people can see it. This morning we're going to look at a number of people who laid eyes on Jesus as a baby, as a child. And we're going to ask the question, what did they see when they saw Jesus? What did they see? We left the story last week with Mary delivering Jesus in a stable and laying him in a feeding trough wrapped in swaddling cloths and and they take Jesus on the eighth day and they have him circumcised and we pick up the story today in Luke chapter 2 verse 22. Uh, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus a, f- a few weeks after that to the temple to observe two laws that are associated with childbirth. The first law that they observe is the law of um, ritual purification after childbirth. For a couple of weeks after childbirth, the, the mother is considered unclean, ceremonially unclean. She can't go to the temple to worship until she obeys these laws. And, and chances are Joseph was also involved in delivering Jesus. He got his, 
hands dirty in the process. And so he too is ceremonially unclean. And so they have to go to the temple to offer a sacrifice for their purification. That's the first thing they go to observe. And the second thing they go to observe is the law of the firstborn. The, the, um, the law in Leviticus says that God owns every firstborn from the womb and from your flock. They belong to God. They're set apart. They're holy. And so Mary and Joseph bring Jesus, their firstborn, to the temple. And whilst it doesn't tell us in the text, but they probably offered a five shekel fee to redeem Jesus, to buy him back. And so they go to this, the temple today in observance and worship of their God to fulfill their obligation to the law. And it's when they get to the temple that this old chap, Simeon, comes up and I just imagine it happening like Lion King style. He snatches Jesus out of Mary's arms and he holds him up and he rejoices and Circle of Life's playing in the background and, and everyone bows at Jesus. Not quite. Let's have a look at what happens. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 25. 2.25 Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was a righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon has a bucket list. Right? He's got a bucket list and he's got one thing left to tick off his bucket list and that is to lay eyes on the, risen, uh, on the, the born Jesus to lay eyes on God's salvation. And the Holy Spirit has revealed this to him, that he wouldn't die before this happens. And that day, as Mary and Joseph come to the temple with Jesus, Simeon's like, tick. I can tick that off my bucket list. He says to God, you can take me now. I'm done. I'm, done. I'm ready to go, Lord. Now, let me ask you this question. What, what would it take for you to say that? What would it take for you to be able to say, God, I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm ready for you to take me. Maybe it would be a major life achievement for you. You've achieved the goals that you've set for yourself. Maybe it would be that you're successful in business and you'd be able to set yourself up financially and provide for your family and, yep, I can go now. Or maybe it would be that you have traveled the world and seen everything that there is to see and or maybe it's that you've got married and, and had kids. Or, or maybe it's that you've seen the grandkids. Or I, I don't know what it, what it is. What is it for you that would cause you to say, yes, God, I'm, I'm ready. You can take me now. But you know, my guess is that really we're, we're not ever really ready to go unless there's something on the other side of death to look forward to. Right? I mean, what, what's there to look forward to? How can you be ready for something if there's nothing there? There has to be something to look forward to. And so it's, it's only when you see Jesus, only when you get who Jesus is, that, that you can utter those words, Lord, I'm ready to go. You can take me now. Why? Because with Jesus, death is the beginning and not the end. With Jesus, death is just the beginning 
and not the end. That's why Paul can say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What? Gain? Yes, to die is gain because what lies ahead is better by far. That's what he says. So when we see Jesus as God's salvation and the hope that he offers us beyond the grave that we can say, God, I'm ready. You can take me now. And we, you don't have to be old to say that when you know Jesus. Like you could say that now, despite all of the unfulfilled goals that you haven't ticked off in your life. We can say, God, along with Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Simeon sees that. You see what he says? Let's have a look back at that verse again, verse 30. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon holds Jesus in his hands. And what does he see? Not, not just a baby, but he sees God's salvation. Now I want to suggest to you it's not his physical eyes that have helped him see that. It's not like Jesus has any particular distinguishing characteristics of himself that, that makes it noticeable. It's not like he's got a special birthmark or anything like that. Simeon looks at Jesus and he sees the salvation of God. So many other people, as Mary and Joseph came to the temple that day, saw Jesus and didn't see what Simeon saw. The priests who performed the duties didn't see what Simeon saw. But he sees Jesus. And it's not his physical eyes, but it's the eyes of faith that allow him to see that. Simeon looks at a baby, and, and he sees forward to the cross when Jesus would die and, and save people. It's In the end, it's the Holy Spirit that has revealed this to him. Do you notice that three times it says in the verse, Simeon is full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is upon him. Simeon comes into the temple in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has revealed this to Simeon. That he would not die before he sees the Christ. This is God's work opening his eyes, the eyes of faith to be able to look at a baby, an ordinary baby, and see something more, see something special about him. Now that's a reminder to us, isn't it, that, that everyone comes to Jesus on the same terms. Everyone comes to Jesus requiring God to open their eyes so that they would see and behold See, what, what does the Bible say of me? I was, I was blind. The Spirit of God did a work and now I see. I need the Spirit of God to open my eyes so I would see Jesus and perceive him as Savior. Now friends, if you're here this morning and, and you don't see Jesus that way, then my encouragement to you would be to ask the Spirit to open your eyes. God, reveal your son to me. Show me. As I read this book, help me to see Jesus the way that these people see Jesus. Help me to see Jesus the way that Luke intended for me to see him as the son of God. Well, Simeon says there that Jesus is a light. A light of revelation for the Gentiles and a light for glory for the people of Israel. He is a light. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the God of this age has blinded the, the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see what? The light of the gospel. They cannot see Jesus, the light. And it's not until the Holy Spirit removes the veil and opens blind eyes that people can see. This is what Simeon sees. And you know, 
that truth ought to lead to humble Christians. Because it's not about you and your ability to see. It's not about you and your ability to achieve. It's not about you and your ability to be good. It's not about you and your ability to attain a certain level of righteousness that would make God happy with you. No, it's about God opening your eyes so you can see. That ought to produce humility in people. Christians ought to be humble. It's so sad when they're not because it's a work of God. The Spirit of God opening blind eyes. And so that's what Simeon sees. He looks at a baby and God reveals to him that this child is the Savior of the world. But that's not all Simeon sees. He sees more than that. He sees opposition to Jesus and he sees pain for Mary. Have a, have a look at what it says in verse 33. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. That is, Mary and Joseph marvels at what Simeon says about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Simeon looks forward and he sees the kind of opposition that would come to Jesus and his ministry. He sees the way that Jesus will be treated. He sees that the ministry of Jesus will cause people to be divided in opinion as to who he is. Simeon looks forward and he sees the cross. And he sees Mary there looking at her boy crucified, hanging there, dying. And he says, Mary, some will perceive your child as the saviour of the world, but others will see him as a blasphemer worthy of death and they will crucify him. He will divide people's opinions. That's what Simeon sees. It's just a baby. He picks up this child and he looks and he sees the salvation of God and he sees Jesus' ministry and the type of opinions that will be divided about this child. That's what Simeon sees. But he's not the only one who sees Jesus in the temple that, that morning and sees something different. There is another person. Her name is Anna. Have a look at verse 30, 36. This is what Anna sees. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up to that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak to him, speak of him, that's of Jesus, to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna is old. right? She's really old. She's an old widow. We've got no idea how good her eyesight is. There's no optometrists in this time, but she comes to the temple and again with the eyes of faith, she sees a child and she begins to rejoice over this child. She begins to tell people who are waiting for the one who was to come that this is the one and she gives thanks to God and she rejoices. It's interesting to note there that both Simeon and Anna are painted for us as people who are waiting expectantly for God to work. They're waiting expectantly. Anna is at the temple daily, worshipping with prayer and fasting, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And I think Luke includes that because he wants us to see that God loves people with an expectant heart. God loves people who are waiting for him to do his work. And that's the kind of church we need to be, an expectant prayerful, hopeful church, looking for God to do his work here in our city. 
So here we have these two people who have never met Jesus before. Right? Anna and Simeon have never met Jesus. They don't even know Mary and Joseph. They're not related. And so Mary and Joseph come to the temple and these two total strangers lay eyes on Jesus and prophetically say, this child is special. He is the Savior of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is God's salvation. But the question is, what did Mary and Joseph see? Because they spent all of their time with Jesus, right? They, they saw him. They saw everything about Jesus. This is, this is what they saw. Have a look at verse 39. And when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their, ta- their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of the Lord was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, so we, we fast forward 12 years, right? Jesus is a three-month-old baby, bang, 12, 12 years. So we, we kind of miss all of that life of Jesus. When he's 12 years old, they went up according to their custom. And when the feast was ended and they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went ahead a day's journey. But when they began to search for him amongst their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been looking for you, uh, sorry, have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It's not much in the Bible about the childhood of Jesus. This is really all we kind of get. But what's on view here about Jesus is his development, that he he grows up, he grows in wisdom, he grows in stature. So the question is, what do Mary and Joseph see? They see a child. They see a kid going through the usual stages of development. But yet, they've also got these messages ringing in their ears. They've got... the message of the angels that came to them and, and you know the angel that came to Mary and said, your son is going to be the one who sits on David's throne forever. He is the Christ. They've got the message of the shepherds who came. They've got the message of Anna and, and Simeon. And so they've got these messages ringing in their ears about who Jesus is and yet they see a baby. You'll notice at the beginning and the end of that section I read there's two references to Jesus growth. Verse 42, it says that he became strong. He grew and became strong. And then verse 52, it says that he increases in wisdom and stature. Mary and Joseph watched Jesus grow up like any other kid. I mean, Mary and Joseph would have changed his nappies and it would have been there as he took his first wobbly steps and the first time that he had solids and and, you know, they would have taught him his first words. And, and when they took him to primary school for the first day, they were barely holding it all together as they handed off their child. And, I mean, he, he learned things. 
probably never learned how to swim, but that doesn't really matter because you could walk on water anyway. But Jesus learned things, right? He grew up. I mean, Mary cooked all these hearty meals for Jesus as a teenage boy. She was like, where did all that go? Joseph teaches Jesus things. I mean, he's a carpenter, and so he teaches Jesus how to cut, how to nail, how to do a join, all that. He, He learns, just like any other kid would have. He grows, he develops. And so Mary and Joseph look at this child of theirs, and while they have these promises ringing in their head, they see a baby, they see a toddler, they see a child, they see a a boy, they see a teenager, they see a man. And yet also they see the Son of God at the same time. It's a mystery of the Christian faith, along with the Trinity, that, that Jesus can be both fully God and fully human at the same time, married together. And we're going to see why that's so vitally important in a second. But you notice an interesting phrase at the end of verse 51 there. It says that Jesus went down back to Nazareth and he was submissive to his parents. Even though they were the ones who were at fault for leaving him there, for not checking that they had their child, he's submissive to his parents and he goes down with them. Even though his, his life's purpose is to be in his father's house, he submits to his parents. You know that Jesus, as a, as a young boy, was never sent to his room for being naughty. He was never grounded. Well, maybe he was, but it wasn't his fault, right? The error was with Mary and Joseph for getting it wrong. It was James's fault. It was someone else's fault. And Jesus copped the blame. It was like, ah, oh, so Jesus of you, Jesus, to take the blame for someone else's naughtiness, right? But, but he it just, it never, like Jesus never sinned, right? He was the perfect child. He was never in error. He perfectly obeys the law. I mean, even as a baby, Mary and Joseph bring him circumcised on the eighth day. The five shekels of redemption is offered for him. He grows up perfectly obeying his parents. And all of that, all of that perfection, all of that obedience, all of that, that godness is what makes Jesus the appropriate savior for our sin. Because you, you realize this, if Jesus decided not to submit to his parents, and rebel against them. Then when he dies on the cross, he dies for his own sin. He's not the perfect sacrifice. He's not the unblemished lamb. So it's crucially important that Jesus is sinless. You know, when Jesus dies on the cross, two, two things happen. And his perfection, his godness depends on this. The first is that when he dies on the cross, he dies to take away your sin. He takes the penalty, the punishment for your sin, and he he wipes the slate clean, gets rid of it. But the second thing that happens when Jesus dies on the cross is that he gifts you his obedience. He gifts you his perfectness. He gifts you what the Bible calls his righteousness. And so there's this great exchange that takes place. Jesus gets your sin and he takes that and then you get his righteousness, his goodness, his obedience. He takes sin, you get perfection. All of that is vitally dependent on the fact that Jesus is both God, he is perfect, and both human, that he can die for us in our place as our representative. So what do Mary and Joseph see? This crazy mix of a child who is both human and yet incredibly God at the same time. And it's a mystery. My question is this for us this morning. What does Sydney see when they look at Jesus? What, is, what does our city see 
when we talk about the Savior of the world, when we talk about this one who has come. I was looking at some stats this week and, and they, they blew me out of the water. Did you know that 80% of people in Australia would say that they either fully or partially believe that Jesus died on the cross? Does that surprise you? 80% of people? And what even blew me away more than that was 53% of people would say that either fully or partially they believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. Interestingly, less believe that Jesus walked in water. I'm like, come on, if, if you believe that someone could rise from the dead, surely you can believe that someone walks on water. But that, those statistics blew me away. So many people in our nation, in our city, get it right about who Jesus is. And yet only 2 to 3% of people in our city would come to church on a Sunday to hear about this Jesus. And so what do, what do people see? People see simply a character who, yes, might have died on the cross and might have risen again, but he's irrelevant. He doesn't mean anything to me. There's, there's no significance of this person on my life. And the problem is that we can intellectually believe those two concepts of Jesus dying on the cross and Jesus rising again, and, and those, those truths will never filter down to our heart. They'll never change the way we live. They'll never impact the way we think and our actions. But we know that Jesus is radically on about the heart. He pursues the heart. I mean, as we get through Luke, you're going to see him going hard after people's hearts. He doesn't care so much about the external. He doesn't care so much about the statements. He cares about the heart. So if people see in our city that Jesus, by and large, is irrelevant, how will they see him as Luke intends him to be seen? How will they see him as he's painted in the pages of the scripture? Someone who can radically transform people. Someone who brings hope. Someone who brings life. Someone who saves and rescues. How will our city see Jesus? I want to suggest to you it's going to be by our actions, by our words, by our love of people, and by our gospel. You know, we don't get the privilege of Simeon. We, we don't get to lay physical eyes on Jesus and see him. We, we, don't get to, we don't get to see what the disciples saw, Jesus ministering and working and performing miracles. We, we don't, and, and it wouldn't be right of us to demand that either. I mean, does Jesus have to come back in every generation and redo what he's done? And we've got eyewitnesses who recorded it for us so we can see and trust and believe. And that's, that's why Luke wrote. Remember, he, the purpose of writing this book is so that the person he wrote to would have faith, would have certainty. And so we want people to see Jesus as he is. And, and this is the way I think it happens. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 says this. 1 John 4, we got it? No one has ever seen God outside of the people who lived in Jesus' time. Right? John is writing after this to a church who's maybe 70, 80 years after the time of Jesus. No one has ever seen God with their eyes, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John writes this verse primarily as a verse of assurance for Christians who ask the question, how can I, how can I know for sure that God loves me? How can I know for sure that, that I'm a Christian? How can I know? And, and he says, well, you'll know if you love one another because the love that God has for you overflows out of you into other people. And so this is a witness. But I think by implication, whilst it's an inward witness to our hearts that yes, I'm, I believe, it's also an outward witness to our world as they see our love 
And interestingly, it's our love for each other at this point. It says, while you love your brothers and sisters, while you love your family, your church family, people will look on and that's a sign that the love of God is real, that the love of God is there. You know, one of the strongest apologetics for our message is a radically transformed life. That Jesus would turn people's lives upside down. And sometimes we feel the pressure of having to know all of the answers and be as smart as John Lennox and Richard Dawkins. And, and, and when, when people really don't want, all they want to see is, does Jesus make a difference for you? I mean, do you really believe this? Does it change your life in any way? A radically transformed life is a massive demonstration that God is real. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, this week, the Sydney Morning Herald put on their front page an article about a church. Crazy, right? Irrelevant, old, who needs the church? But yet, Sydney Morning Herald front page writes an article about a church called City Light in Balmain that our good friends Gav and Jez have planted uh, a year and a half ago. And one of the girls from their church, a young girl called Coco, has been burdened to care for refugees who are landing in our cities and have got no food and no money and no housing. And she wanted to care for them and she had no idea what to do. And so she went to some of the organizations that help asylum seekers. She said, how can we help? And they said, you know what? We need food. They need food. They've got no money. One of them can work. There's 10 of them living in the house. There's no toiletries. She said, I'm on it. She started a thing called Simple Love. And last month, I think it was $30,000 worth of food, groceries, and supplies were donated by churches across our city as she's gathered them together and said, look, if God loves us, if we were the ones who were the outcast, if we were the ones who were the exiles, if we were the ones who were the refugees and God pursued us and loved us, then shouldn't we be doing that for other people who land in our country and our city and care for them? And she was motivated by the love of Jesus to go and love these other people and and the herald picks up and goes, what is happening here? This is, no one does this. The, the people at the Center for Refugees in Newtown said, no one does this. You got, no one comes and donates $30,000 worth of groceries for refugees, and yet here is the church doing this. This week, ABC called them up, ABC Radio, and said, can we run a story? This is incredible. Friends, that's the church. That's the love of God filtering, filtering through people into other people. And as our world looks on that, they say, aha, there's something here. There's something about these people. So that's the first way I think our city will see Jesus, as we love our city to bits. But the second way I think people will see Jesus is as we speak of him. This is what it says um, about Paul and Barnabas. Luke writes a second edition of his volume of the work of Jesus is called Acts. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, he says this about two of his servants, two of Jesus' servants, Paul and Barnabas. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you what? A light to the Gentiles. That's exactly what Jesus was. I've made you a light to the Gentiles that you might bring <coughs> excuse me, salvation to the ends of the earth. Simeon says, I look at this child and I see a light of revelation for the Gentiles. And that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas are. Taking the message of Jesus and living a radically transformed gospel life as they do that to the ends of the earth. Remember what Jesus says about the church, Matthew 5? He says this, You are the light of the world. 
You're the light of the world, a light of revelation. It's not just Jesus. Friends, this is, this is what incarnational ministry is about. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This city will see Jesus as they see Jesus in us and as they hear Jesus from us. If our church is being what God has called us to do, if our church is really living out our gospel identity, that we have radically transformed people, they can't help but see and hear Jesus in and through us. That's the kind of church we need to be. Love this city to bits. Have the love of God overflow from us. But I want to make this... um, a, bit, a little bit more pointed. Rather than just talk about the 4.6 million people in our city and what they see, I want to ask, what do you see? What do you see when you look at Jesus, when we talk about Jesus here? Is he your saviour? And many people would say, yeah, of course. Of course. I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe he rose again, died for my sins. Of course he's my saviour. But you know, there's a real difference between a stated verbal saviour and an actual functional saviour. Something that we really do quickly turn to instead of turning to Jesus. We say, yeah, of course Jesus is my saviour, but when, when we really need him, the first thing we go to is something else rather than coming to Jesus. I love what um, Mark Driscoll does. He, he gives five questions to help identify a functional saviour in your life. And so we're going to work through those five questions now. And, and as I ask these questions, for those of you who've got particularly soft consciences, I, I don't want this to cause doubt or lack of assurance for you. And so my prayer is we go through these questions, the Spirit of God would work in your heart and remind you that you're His child. But I ask these questions to help us examine whether or not we really are having Jesus as our Savior. So the questions are there on the screen. There we go. Question number one, who or what do you live for? Who or what do you live for? Is it your career, your family, yourself? What is it? If Jesus is not there, he's not in the place he should be. Who or what can you not live without? Your partner, your iPhone, technology. Who who or what can you not live without? Who or what do you turn to in times of need? You know, when, when your world crumbles, what's the first thing you rush to? Is it falling at the foot of the cross and pleading, gee, or, or is it food, or shopping, your partner, or alcohol? What's, where's the functional saviour when you're in need? What causes your highest joy and, and your lowest grief? When you lose a person, when you lose a job, when you gain a person, when you gain a job, Who or what is the center of your life? Jesus needs to be in that place. And if he's not, it means something else is Savior there. Whatever it might be, it might not be any of those things that I've listed. It might be something different for you. You know, in the end, money is a useless God because it just runs out. You can't take it with you. Your partner, they, they can't be your Savior. I mean, they're not perfect. You ought to know that by now. They let you down. They break your heart. They, they're selfish. They don't make a good God. Food, 
is not the ultimate comforter. I mean, we should know this, right? We, we run to food for comfort and then so quickly we're uncomfortable because we've overeaten and it just doesn't work. Sex is not the ultimate feeling. It just doesn't last that long. But you know, Jesus always satisfies. Jesus never lets you down. Jesus is the ultimate comforter, no matter how dark the season. Jesus never ends. Friends, what, what do you see when you look at Jesus? Do you see your Savior? A couple of years ago, a friend of mine, uh, some, of you, some of you will know him, his name's Paul. Um, he, he was living a, a wildly reckless life. Um, <clears throat> this guy was, if anyone was pursuing pleasure, it was Paul. He um, pursued it as hard as he could get, bought as many toys as he could, custom Harley-Davidson's, Ducatis. Um, for, for kicks, he used to um, like ride up to the police, flip the bird, and then just do a wheelie and ride off in his motorbike. He was a great motor- motorcycle rider, and he would outrun the cops all the time. Eventually, he got caught. He was, um, he was riding back. He was racing at Eastern Creek, and he realized that he forgot to flick his his fuel tank from reserve back to normal and he ran out of petrol went to flick it over and realized he was out of out of petrol completely gone and there's this big guy he's like hulk and he's hiding behind this little tree with his motorbike on the ground and the police pull him. he goes to jail for two years reckless life and then he gets out of jail and his cousin grant has been um investigating who jesus is becomes a christian and him and grant do dirt bike riding together and and he's like Dude, I, there's something different about you. You've changed. I could go into jail, I come out, and you're a different person. He's like, yeah, I, I met this guy, Jesus. He changed my life. You should come to church. Paul's like, all right, tried everything else. May as well go to church. He goes to church. He sits in the back row of church, and as he sits in the chair, he says he feels a weight just completely drop off his shoulders. He's like, never felt that before. Listens to the message, and he's like, this is incredible. I've never heard anyone talk the Bible this way. I've never heard anyone talk about Jesus. He goes to work the next day. He's a truck driver and he's driving his truck. And he's uh, just, I don't know where he's driving. He's driving along, along the road. And all of a sudden, this blinding light appears in the cabin of his truck to the point where he has to pull the truck over and stop. And the light disappears. He's like, what was that? And he rings Grant. He's like, dude, I'm driving my truck. And, and this light appears in the truck and it blinds me. I have to stop and pull over. And he goes, what is it? What is happening to me? And Grant goes, I think Jesus is showing himself to you. And as the weeks go by, he reads the Bible, he, he meets the Jesus that we find in the pages of the Scripture, and his life is radically transformed. Radically, like, this guy's now married to, like, the woman's pastor at my old church at MBM. His life turned upside down because he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus for who he is. Friends, wherever you are today on the journey of faith, from agnosticism to belief, we, we need to see Jesus for who he is. We need to see him as our saviour. Maybe today for the first time, you see him with the eyes of faith and, and you see him as Luke has painted him and you're like, yes, Jesus is my saviour. Or, or maybe today you need to see him afresh with fresh eyes. And, and repent of those functional saviors and come back to Jesus and see him as you know him to be. The only sufficient saviour, that is. Friends, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together now. And as we do this, 
what we're doing is we're looking at Jesus. Well, we're not physically looking at him. We're looking at two symbols. We're looking at bread and grape juice. And these two symbols represent Jesus. And so with the eyes of faith, we need to see what Jesus has done for us by having his body broken and his blood shed on our behalf. So during this time of response, we ask you guys to reflect, to pause, to pray, to repent of functional saviors in your life and as your heart is ready to come forward and to dip the bread into the grape juice and to remember what Jesus has done. But friends, if you're a guest with us, please don't feel under any obligation to participate in this. If you're not comfortable, that's fine. Just enjoy this time of reflecting. If you would like prayer for anything, if there's things that God has been stirring in your heart, things that you would like to repent of, things that are weighing heavily upon you, then then Brian, who emceed, and, and Steve are going to be out to the side here just in the foyer. They would love to pray for you. Anything. There is nothing that is too small to bring before our God. But friends, we're going to pause and we're going to reflect and we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. So I'm going to pray, ask the band to come up, and we're going to respond. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in this child we see not just a baby, not just a a boy, but we see God, we see the Savior of the world. We thank you, Father, for what Jesus has done for us, that he is our rescuer. And we pray this morning for the eyes of faith that would see Jesus not as irrelevant to our lives, but as our rescuer, our redeemer, our hope, I want to repent this morning, Father, of functional saviors, of things that we run to so quickly instead of our real Savior, Jesus. And I ask, Father God, that you would transform us and change us, make us more like him for your glory. Amen.